I'm Lisa DeLay, and you're listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, listeners, to Spark My Muse. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming on a friend. Ando was introduced to me through the podcast called Encountering Silence with Kevin Johnson, Carl McCollman, and Cassidy Hall. And I was intrigued with Ando's work, and I wanted her to be a guest on the Spark My Muse podcast. And I'll warn you ahead of time that operating heavy machinery or driving while tired and listening to this podcast could be sleep-inducing. Ando is very tranquil and calm in her manner and in her way. And I have found her wisdom, her spiritual practice of encountering silence as she has in her life and in her poetry or the words she places down as a spiritual practice that serve silence to be very soothing. It's a balm to the soul to tune in and listen to her and follow her work. So as I introduce you to her, keep in mind that she is coming from a, a very quiet, solitary life, and her manner is very different than the fast-paced, chaotic one we're used to. The first part of this conversation will be on the podcast, and the second part will be offered free at patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse. You can hear the rest of the conversation, which is fairly long and, and has been edited down. While you're on the Patreon site as well, look at the other posts that have been made available to the public. And consider if you'd like to contribute to my work, perhaps at just a dollar a month, as well as contribute to Ando's work, which is at Patreon as well. I will be giving you the links to visit her within the show notes that you'll find at Patreon. Enjoy our conversation. Oh, I hardly know where to start, but I um, did want to start with just sharing my gratitude with you um, for sharing yourself and your ways of silence um, in places in this world where it's so foreign, and uh, I'm getting acquainted with it myself, finding so much, um, so much respite and solace and silence, which isn't, uh, which is my shadow side. Um, for people who are unacquainted with you what would you like to say that would best describe what your life is like (laughs) there's an interesting question what is my life like (laughs) my life isn't like anything um that's the best description I can give it. It's, it doesn't have a form or a format. Um, for example, today I'm in transition. Um, maybe uh, maybe 10 days ago, I'm not even sure, um, I discovered that I'm relocating from Portugal to England mm. for the first time in 11 years since I... <laughs> mm. 
And and so actually at the moment my life is in transition, but it's not like anything. It's not, um, there wasn't a plan for this. And there wasn't, yeah. None of my life has been planned for quite some years now. Um, I find if, if we find we're failing, then we must have had a plan. You spent, was it about five years in the forest in silence, in relative silence? Yes, in, in you could say in relative silence. Um, I lived with my partner. So most of that time, um, my partner, I've been in relationship for th- over 34 years, um, both on the spiritual path. But um, we actually have different I can't. I can't exactly say what my practice is because I don't. Um, poetry is my practice. Let's say that for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and she practices in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Um, but actually, we were aligned for many many of those years in in different paths as my own journey has led along. And that time in the forest, once again, wasn't planned. Came quite spontaneously. It was a leap from the path of dedicated Zen practice and being a, a student Zen teacher, um, and it it led yeah it led me right into the forest first with a teacher uh, Muji I was with, and I lived at his ashram and around that area um, close by um, for most of the first two and a half years of that. And then I met his teacher's um, wife, um, the wife of uh, Papaji, Gangamira, um, who became my teacher further south here in Portugal. And again, quite spontaneously, uh, a place appeared in the forest to live, um, kind of totally supported. And that was the deepest period of time. Um, We were invited to go and caretake a place that was completely um, remote. It was four kilometers to the nearest village up the tracks. Mm. Um, Just living in pine trees. The only, I can't say people we would meet up there because we didn't particularly meet anybody. Our neighbors were wild boar and honeybees. Mm. The occasional butterfly. I think we had one mouse, the mongoose, that would pass through. And so it was really the wind and the pines and the incredible night sky because there was no light pollution. I would have trouble just actually coming indoors (laughs) because I could just sit with all of that and listen and just be with it. And I would spend a lot of time on my own during those days. If I wasn't with my teacher, we would be up, up there in silence and the time with my teacher I would also call silence Uh, some people would probably call it quite uh, lively and loud but the nature of silence isn't that of the phenomenal so with your teacher it wouldn't be lessons would it be sitting still or um, be questions with Ganga, the teacher I was with then, um, I was in satsang. 
So we we would sit in satsang. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with satsang. Um, satsang is meetings in truth. So it's a gathering of people who are seekers of the truth. And it can be a combination of silence and questions. And for some, it's questions and answers with the teacher. For others, it's just sitting in silence or listening. For each, for each, it has a different um, way of presenting. And for you, did you find that you had questions? Not particularly, no. I had... Um, I think she more thrust me in a situation of uh, speaking to her a few times at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, d I didn't have any questions when I went to her. I, di I didn't go for that reason. Once again, if I say, um, it, it was so spontaneous, the, the urge to go and meet her and to be there and the recognition that it was just the place I had to be. And it was like absolutely to the exclusion of all other activities or intentions. Um, again, completely out of the blue. Yes, yeah, so there I was. I, I went a little to hide behind her also, which I've spoken about in some other interviews. I won't kind of go into that. Yes, it was just where I needed to be. I just didn't know it until I got there and I recognized that I needed to be there. Once there, there was nothing I needed to do but be there until the point came where, interestingly, in spring of 2017, um, the period of time in the forest up there, say there were a couple of trips away in the summer, um, two other quiet places, and still that life of Zen and poetry and satsang and silence. This, this has been the common way, really, since, since 2012, this has been the common way full-time for me. Um, yes, so the spring of 17, the forest, I, I say, spat me out. And I found myself in the urban environment, and not having a plan for being spat out and not knowing where I should go or what I should do. So what came along, I went and did, which has kind of always been my way. Um, it's like my feet seem to know what the next step is. And I always feel like so long as I know where I'm placing my foot on the ground next, as long as I can see where to place it, that's, that's sufficient. I don't have to be planning a, a route. And so I had to trust that. And that was, that was, um, that was a cliff dive. <laughs> oh. That was a cliff dive after five years like that. Where I, I, I could have very comfortably just stayed like that for the rest of my days. I'd, I'd have been very happy. Oh. <laughs> but instead, I was, I was literally just, yeah, thrust out of that was how it felt. Like out of the womb? No, just out into the world from the forest. What was the forest? I don't think of it as a womb. I think of it as it was my teacher. 
that, you know, that was my, many things have been my teacher, all things are my teacher. Um, and that period of time in that way, and the different teachers I was with, the, the forest was a key part. The forest was a key part and it taught me that I didn't need to say anything. And the poetry came out of the silence or was it beginning before you ever came into the forest? It began before. I mean, like many a person, I'd write the odd, <laughs> odd being the word probably, um, but um, nature poem as a young person, as a child. I spent five years in art school and um, I moved from making visual material and video and audio to actually producing some poetry at that point also. So there was this backstory that there was a bit of poetry around, but I would have never thought it was going to be anything, you know, of any consequence. And then in 2010 was when poetry became a daily thing in my life. So it actually was prior to me meeting my Zen master, my first Zen master in person. Um, I'd had a cancer scare. I was in Italy at the time. And this cancer scare just taught, taught me to completely realign everything in my life. I was I was actually a web designer and professional photographer traveling with like probably tens of thousands of uh, bits of equipment and and I just the moment I went through that meeting myself in that could this be it could this be the end of my life for what turned out to be the second time actually um it just made me check everything in my life and was it true and was it valid that it was present and what I found was actually I wiped the slate clean literally completely um, I, all my social media I believe I deleted I, I deleted my hard drive I, I took my work offline everything and I started a new blog I think which I, I was kind of like inspired by the simplicity kind of movement then. And I started writing what were I called Seeds of Zen. And they might have just been four-word poems, two-word poems. And I would blog those each day. And I think I built even a randomizer where people could just get, get one to come up randomly. And... So since that day, since the beginning of January in 2010, I've written every day. And so I went from being a visual creator to being a writer only and having a, my only camera was my iPhone. And it remains so to this day. Uh, strangely, I did get uh, hired to run a, my own travel column wow. <laughs> with my iPhone photography. I was like, ah, oh, okay, I can't dodge this so easy. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for about a year and a half on the side alongside this, but then that, that fell away. And yeah, I, I just had to trust and walk in the trust of doing this very simple thing. And I still built the old website. 
but really not very much to get by on. Um, not at all. <laughs> but there was just something so important about this stripping away and this simplicity and this clean start, this break. And by the time it came to 2012, when I met my first Zen master, I'd, my seeds of Zen had started to develop into haiku poetry, um, which had appeared previously now, remembering probably in about 2005, I'd written some haiku during the healing process when I, I had ME for seven years. Um, I was housebound and bedbound. And part of my recovery and healing was um, when I was able to read and write, which I wasn't for quite some of those years, um, I, I started to write haiku. And so there was this, this sense that um, it's something sustainable for me was how it began. And something that was expressive and sustainable, even if I was lying flat on my back or had no energy but it came back in a different way in 2012, and it really came as part of this growth of the Zen path and the very clear message that came into my life because wherever I looked, all I could see was that I had to train as a meditation teacher. In, I'm building a website, and all I could see is like having a hand in front of my face at the end of my nose with it written on it. And it didn't matter how much I tried to look away. It was having none of it. And before I knew it, I um, sought out training and asked my um, design clients, would they uh, help fund my training uh, with a special offer that I put? And I raised the funds for my training within something like 48 hours. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't a small amount. Um, it was probably about... Um, a couple of thousand maybe maybe in your dollars maybe and and again before I knew it another few weeks maybe two months um, I'd started to meet the Zen master I started to study under him as a meditation and mindfulness teacher and I immediately felt that I wanted to train as a Zen teacher and to follow the path formally um, and I discovered through my training that haiku was an essential part of the Zen practice um, in this tradition that I, I was engaged in. And so I became lay ordained in um, the Rinzai Zen tradition. Yeah, hai haiku just seemed to embody it so clearly for me. And it became clear that there was something it embodied my understanding of Zen, but without being um, a literary understanding or um, intellectual understanding. As if the poetry reached out for you and the spirituality followed that. I, I honestly couldn't say. I honestly couldn't say. I really don't have... Um, would have been different when I was younger, perhaps, maybe not. Don't have an analytical mind that asks those kind of questions. Um, 
the biggest question I've ever spent time asking myself has been, who am I? Whichever teacher mm. I've been with, that's been the way. It was my first koan in Zen. And I discovered it through Advaita Vedanta in Satsang. And that kind of carried my journey for the years that followed. Yeah, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the who am I question is a big uh, question that will undo a person. Am I understanding that properly? Yes, if it's asked properly, mm. if it's asked clearly, if it's asked without intellect, if it's it's an inquiry more than a question. So, for example, Ganga would say, you only have to ask it once, fully, completely, and it can be enough. Um, when it was first taught to me in Zen, it was taught very differently from that, although the, the root of the practice is the same. You'll find it in the deepest roots of Buddhism. You'll find it in the deepest roots of any faith in the you know, in the perennial tradition, there's the idea that um, the idea that all faiths have a path up the mountain, and the top is the common ground. In the perennial tradition, um, that's not the case. In the perennial tradition, and in my experience, which is the only reason I came across the perennial tradition, it's not my faith or interest in that way it's just the only name i know for it i suppose that i can give it that people could look up um that actually the common ground of all faiths of all spiritual i don't i don't even want to use the word paths because it doesn't feel true is the root and that we all actually arise from a common root a common source and that the faiths are like the the roots that grow into the trunk, that grow out into branches, that grow out into twigs and leaves. And these are all the different expressions of that common root. And the highest teaching of all faiths that I've certainly explored to any depth, and that includes Christian contemplative practice, for example, is to return to the source, to return to the root, to turn back in on oneself. And that is what it is to inquire, who am I? That's, that's a returning to that common source. And in that place, there, there is no separate path or faith there is only that source and whether we call it God in our tradition or we call it the absolute or we call it the universal or we call it life or life force or whatever our term is, it's, it's the same reference point. There isn't a point. <laughs> I can't, I, we're, we're in tricky ground with that one. <laughs> yes. Not the ground of language. Yes, it's not. 
when I've sunk deeply into silence and and filled my not just my mind but maybe my whole self with with that question it's a dissolving question yes that i whatever i consider me or my ambitions or whatever it goes away yes I, I could sense it like um, one example I was given in Zen Buddhism, um, maybe by another teacher too, it's probably a more common one, is that if we were to picture that uh, we're a, an ice cube or a block of ice, and that, say, as we find Buddhahood or we find truth or any other kind of spiritual transformation, that it's the ice melts and it was water all along and it becomes water but it can also it can it can flow it can evaporate it becomes vapor it can be it's it's an eternal thing it doesn't go anywhere it can change form but never yeah and so and even you know barely appear to have form at all it can, you know, it can be present and yet not visible whatsoever. H2O can be in the atmosphere of the room I'm sitting in. And yet it can also be there clear as day as a block of ice. And it depends on conditions. And then you wonder, here we all are, we try to seek something to transform ourselves when actually, you know, can an ice cube transform itself into water or into vapor? It's not possible. I'm wondering what what you sense to know that the forest spit you out, or to know that it's time to move to the Buddhist meditation center. What do you sense? Uh, when the forest spat me out, my my term of residence there came to an end. I was caretaking a place up in the forest. Um, you know, previously, I'd lived in tents in the forest. I'd lived in huts in the forest. I'd slept in the back of a car on cliffs mm. <laughs> to be near my teacher. All sorts of things. It was, you know, I, such a strong determination. And then the ease and naturalness of being in the forest at this place that the date just came, the, the, the time came, my, my term of residence at that property came to an end. And I could have said, and I think we discussed it at the time, but we don't want to go. We want to stay in this environment or we want to find a similar environment. Where can I go that I can find the same feeling? or the, It's not possible. You know, we're on a hiding to nothing with that approach because it will never be. It will be something in its own right, another experience, if you like. And so, as I have for quite some years now, I simply trusted and walked on in faith and even when it could feel like a suffering or a, a challenge or 
then I kept walking. I mean, interestingly, coinciding with that time in my life, um, my mother died within, oh, less than, just under eight weeks, or about eight weeks after I left the forest. And so actually there I was, again, adapting to a new environment where I'd, the place I went to. And all of that was swept away through my mother dying and the timing of it. And, the, and that actually swept my spiritual path clear also. I would say it was the, the probably the, the my mother probably gave me my first spiritual teachings. Not probably, she did. Just through her life and her intention, she brought me up as a Catholic, as a Roman Catholic, put me through a Roman Catholic primary school. And through those intentions, that, that was my first spiritual education. Um, and in her passing, that was like her final teaching to me. And for someone who already felt like they were living in a groundless world, in a groundless state, who felt there was just nowhere to stand or land, or the bottom then fell out of that. And what I've actually learned to discover is that any false bottoms will just keep falling. They will just keep falling. And that would be then when I entered a period of my life that I discovered later to be what would be referred to as the dark night of the soul, not because there was some doom or gloom or depression, but just a sheer falling, 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 for just a constant sense of falling and nothing was sticking. And so this had to be suddenly this placing my foot the next step, it, it had to be into empty space. It had to be complete faith even in the falling. And still all this while, poetry. Still this, this crazy thing with poetry. <laughs> Would the poetry reflect the falling? I'd have to look back to know, to be quite honest. I'm, I'm quite surprised myself when I look back at most of what I've written. So I'm sure most writers must be. Well, I'm not sure. I've got no idea, to be honest. But I don't think you would say it would directly reflect it because by this point, my poetry... mostly would be the absence of me. And so, you know, this is the poetry of, this is the poetry of the root, this is the poetry of the silence, this is the poetry of the pines, of the flowers. Not because I'm a nature poet, but it just seems to be that these, these are the tools of my language that, have been given. And I was just looking now, I selected some poems that you asked me to look, and I'm just looking at some of the words that are in them and how they, I'm very much, yeah, because the falling, this sense of falling, coming back to it, was 
It was like a falling away of all reference points, even the idea that there weren't any. Um, again, we run out. I run out of mileage with language here. Yes. <laughs> this this is where the poetry speaks so beautiful for me. You know, this is why if only one poem expressed me, it would be the one that I put on most of the pages where I'm present online, which is silence, the only language I am fluent in. Because nothing else, nothing else is accurate. It's like silence is the only thing that has any sense of accuracy, of truth. That's the word. Now having that you just said that, I'll ask you to do the opposite. And if there is something that you would like to read, I know that your poems can sometimes be very sparse, but you just gave us a perfect disclaimer, I suppose. That's what, you know, that's that's about the, the right length for most of my poems. I did actually, I've got a couple of uh, longer ones that I wrote in the forest also, um, which are very rarely seen out, out in the wild because uh, I reserve some of those works for my patrons because they're funding me to write um, a couple of books. Um, but I've got a couple of those. It's open house for my patrons. Uh, Patreon this week, so I'm uh, I'm sharing a bit more uh, widely. But so, did you want me to read something now? That would be great. Also, yeah. mention the specific place where listeners could fund you on Patreon or read some of your work. Okay, um, let's do that bit first because that's that's the kind of dull worldly thing. <laughs> um, you can find me on Patreon. I'm not very good at adverts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Patreon at um, patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the unsui, T-H-E-U-N-S-U-I. And for anybody who wonders, the word um, unsui means a novice monk, um, it also means a monk who has awakened and left the monastery and goes seeking masters for a period of confirmation or which I've got to say is rubbish also um, <laughs> it was the I had so many names through my spiritual path that in the end I felt the best term to use as my tag online was the unsui my name Ando is the, the truest name I've ever had and the unsui is it's it's a reference point for what I am so um, just one other part of my advert there will then would be my website which is ando.life so that's quite simple So let me try a poem. Hiding 10,000 unborn flowers, an empty field.
There's a tradition in haiku. I won't say I'm a haiku poet. That gets into another intellectual game for me. It's not, it's not quite the truth of what I write. Um, there's a tradition to read poems three times. But my feeling generally is to not. However, if you ask me to repeat any, I'll happily do so. Hmm? Okay. Hiding. Ten thousand unborn flowers in an empty field. Choose another. Before it even falls, the sound of the rain. Even the cracks in the pavement, teaching the Dharma. As petals fall on moss, silence. Now I have a, a long four-line poem. Four lines. <laughs> Two oh. verses, four lines. I've got bigger than that. <laughs> I'm going to buckle in. <laughs> Let's go for it. This is a two two verses. White mala, string of bleached bone. Memories of another death, another life. That one is from, I spent many years doing death meditation um, during my years uh, that I was bedbound and housebound. And I developed a, a Buddhist practice of death meditation. And that mala, actually I still have that mala. Um, it carries many recitations. <laughs> Could you explain that a little bit more? I was introduced to a practice by a Tibetan Buddhist teacher at the time. Um, I was recommended to practice what's known as Vajrasattva purification practice. And it was where I first kind of came into contact with some of the, the deeper, um, more powerful practices. And Vajrasattva is an interesting Buddha for me not particularly to be found in Zen. Um, there was a recognition when I was shown the Vajrasattva mantra. The teacher said to me, you, sh you should normally have an empowerment for this, but actually with this one and your circumstances, you, you can get away with this. I, I can give, give you the um, authority to do this practice. And the idea is that in one's lifetime or in one's practice, one should 
chant 100,000 Vajrasattva mantras as this purification practice. And it's a hundred syllable mantra. And I was given a booklet with the mantra and the practice in. And I had the bone mala for chanting it because bone is more appropriate for this kind of practice. And I was also practicing death meditation at the time. I think there'd been a lot of fear of death and that that my, my illness began with an almost death. So, and it kind of ended being a kind of death of a former life also. But when I was shown the mantra, someone said they could lend me the booklet until I could get my own copy. And I saw it and I read it and I spoke it and I knew it. All hundred syllables. And it wasn't possible (laughs) for that. There was no way. I could not make sense of it. I was like, how is this possible that I can know a hundred syllable mantra I've never seen before? And the only thing that made sense was that somewhere, sometime, I'd practiced this mantra. It was already ingrained in me. And in fact, even to this day now, it's it kind of like runs silently in the background. I haven't formally practiced it for, for some years, and yet I, I could drive a car with this mantra running. It's, 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 And it's, it's a beautiful mantra, and it's a powerful mantra. My Zen master tried to stop me practicing it, but I couldn't. It was Why did he? Uh, it was just a case of, we don't do that here. <laughs> oh. I later met a Zen master who had um, Tibetan practices combined, um, which I found quite reassuring, actually, that there, there, there isn't a singular path. And that we have to recognize the touchstones of our own path and find the teacher in everything. What sort of things does the mantra say? I only know it in Tibetan. Oh, so you... (laughs) I'm so confused. (laughs) But somehow it, somehow it's, Empowering and changes you from the inside. Yes, it's a purification practice. We oh. we embody um, the Buddha Vajrasattva and the Buddha within him. And there's a whole series of Buddhas that we, we absorb and dissolve into ourselves. And we come to embody Buddha Vajrasattva. And so then we, we have become the purified being, the Buddha. And so it's a way of purifying negative karma is the theory. I can't tell you I believe in this. <laughs> right. because, yeah, I just, this is the, but it was already in me. I didn't go, oh, this is a great idea. This could really help. This would work. It was just like someone told me, a teacher, Buddhist monk, told me to do this practice. 
Um, actually, where I'm going, I'll be doing this practice several times a week um, with a group of other people just because it feels like a nice thing to do. They're doing it. And my partner said, uh, you know, perhaps I'd like to join that. And I was like, you know, it feels, feels a nice thing to do. Again, not because it just feels right. It's this thing again. But this mantra, oh, yes. I love it. <laughs> it's just the most natural thing. Like silence. It's like silence to me, these hundred syllables. I don't, I don't see a difference. And I can't explain it. And I don't seek to go into former life theories. or I, I just accept this, this, this is who I am in the world. Not really. <laughs> we don't want to make that one too easy, do we? You know, as I've spoken to so many people in in the contemplative way who make this their life or their mm -hmm. big part of their life, they tell me the same sorts of things that it is the way of death. Yes. We could say that. Yeah. It is a death. Yeah. True contemplation is a death because it's a death to... It's a death to belief. It's a death to holding on. It's a death to grasping to life as we believe it is or should be. It's a death to following the mind. Um, my, my deepest contemplative practice was coming into contact with the cloud of unknowing. Um, I've been asked to write a piece on it in relationship to Zen. Um, Again, a spontaneous seven-week solitary retreat occurred for me in 2015 on the cloud of unknowing. Um, can't explain how that happened either, but it, but it did. It did. Um, circumstances came together just like the water and the ice. Suddenly I found myself in Menorca running a little small holding for a number of weeks on my own, nobody around. And this book came into my life. Actually, it, did, it had a Zen thread. My first Zen master had led a retreat on the cloud with a, a Christian teacher, a contemplative teacher. And I thought, oh, so, so we Zenists can, can explore this. This is pretty cool. I need to find out what this is. And I was just pulled into it. It was like I had the book and then it was like, I need the audio. And I had the audio and I, I ran it through the night, day and night. And I just, I didn't dive into it. I was just pulled into this practice. Um, so I have a very particular experience of the cloud of unknowing. And... You know, the cloud of unknowing, the first thing we have to do is enter the cloud of forgetting. Yeah, right. And so first we must forget. First we must let go. First we must lay down our baggage and our, our yesterdays and our tomorrows and even our in five minutes' time, even our now. Even our concept of now or not now. Everything. This, this is all that the cloud of forgetting is. And we, this is a simplified version, but it's a very simple practice, actually, at heart. 
Um, and it's only when we've placed everything into that cloud of forgetting can we enter the cloud of unknowing. And this is a death. But it's the most glorious death. Because it's not a phenomenal death. It's death to everything that's unreal, to everything that's untrue. That's everything that isn't who you really are. And there is such, in my experience, but experience is not a good word either at this point, the most, I could say peaceful place, but peaceful wouldn't be true and place wouldn't be true. It's, it's pure silence, but it's not phenomenal silence. It's silence as God. It's silence. Shalom. Yes, yes. It's the ultimate truth. This is the cloud of unknown. This is, it's, it's a name for that which is unnameable and undefinable and unknowable. Hence the name. <laughs> How do you name the unknowable? You call it the cloud of unknowing. I kind of like the cloud aspect because it, it gives you some kind of sense of there's something. Because many, many people, the majority of people, would not be able to find a way into such a practice without some kind of just the haze of a definition. My hands are moving now, trying to kind of describe <laughs> it as if I can do Coffee that. cloud. <laughs> Very interesting hand movements. They're a very open palm. <laughs> There's no thing, you know. It's like, how, how do you paint that? How do you? It's you know, it's not a phenomenal cloud. It's 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 where all phenomena arise from and return to. And it's the same as the returning to the source in Advaita Vedanta. It's the same as. Bankei Zumborn in the um, Japanese um, Zen tradition. It's the same as, it's the Tao, the Tao, whatever name you want to give it, it's the same. I know uh, Richard Rourke calls it Christ consciousness, so other people, yes. contemplatives call it Christ yeah. consciousness. It's really pointing to, to the same thing that others say. Yes. Of eternal point or non-point. Yeah. <laughs> eternal something or other, you know? <laughs> something, nothing, you know. Yes. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, especially in Western thought, Christianity or faith traditions, um, especially in, in what I was raised, would uh, have no idea that that's a stream that runs through everything, including Christianity and Yes. Don't have any idea that that's deeply rooted in in Christian historical faith, and so you know that's that was written yes. by a Christian cloistered monk. <laughs> he was all in. <laughs> so ah, the most incredible gift, absolutely most. I regard it as the most incredible gift I've ever been given was that he wrote the Cloud of Unknowing. Truly. And I love that you don't know who wrote it. That's the whole, that's that's like exactly you don't know who wrote it. <laughs> yes. 
The cloud wrote it, is what I say. <laughs> yeah. The cloud wrote it. It's, it's like Basho and poetry, and the, you, you want to know the pine, go to the pine. You want to know the bamboo, go to the bamboo. And I think the piece I, I shared today that I wrote on Patreon, you know, is about, you know, the, the wind in the pines speaks for the wind in the pines. And only the cloud can speak of the cloud in the cloud's own language. And we could have a lifetime of conversations or writings about it, and we're never going to touch on it. But what we can do is give a taste that invites others to the cloud or to self-inquiry or to whatever label, whatever path is, is appropriate for each and every one of us at any given time because there are so many variables all contained. The cloud is also between people in relationship. And uh, that's something that I wasn't aware of either. It, it's, it's also the connective tissue between kindred spirits or souls or whatever you want to say people are? I would say it's it's where we arise from. It's what we're made of. It's what moves us. It It's what breathes us. And I was speaking this morning to my partner about resonance. And you know, when you talk about kindred spirits or kindred souls, and I was talking about it with relation to members of my family and how there are different relationships and how my relationship with my partner is different than, you know, it might have been with someone different. Or, and it's to do with this resonance. Just like if you put two guitars side by side or even in the same room, you know, they could be quite a few feet away and you strike a string on one of them, or you pluck a chord, or you strike a chord. If they're sufficiently in tune already, they don't have to be dead on, but if they're sufficiently close enough in tune, there's a resonance, and the second one, the strings begin to vibrate. And there's, there's a tone, there's a tune, there's an alignment. And my experience has been that this is the case with people, with friends, with family members, with partners, with places, with spiritual teachers. And also that that resonance isn't some permanent thing. In what way? In that... We all see that relationships seem to seem to move and change, and the the resonance or the tune on one instrument changes, and so then it may not resonate with the other, and that that can be in a um, a partner to partner relationship. It could be in a student teacher relationship. It can be in a, a parent child relationship. It could be all kinds of. Um, it can be in a person in a place all kinds of situations. But the cloud is, is before even that. 
silence is before even that. And in silence and in the cloud, I tend to abbreviate it to the cloud. It gets a bit <laughs> long to repeat, although not as long as that mantra. Um, in the cloud, all, all things are equal. All th there aren't any things. There aren't any me and you. There isn't any separation. There isn't a me and the cloud. There isn't me and God. There isn't me and truth. There isn't a me. And so... There isn't any need for concepts such as resonance. So what I find is there at a more worldly level, or somewhere between, let's say, but closer to the worldly level. I'm talking like I know something. I don't know anything. I just want to confirm that. <laughs> Who says this stuff? <laughs> You have been listening to the conversation of Lisa DeLay and Ando. To hear part two of the edited conversation, go to patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse. This will be presented free of charge, but you're encouraged to contribute to the work of Spark My Muse there too. You can also access other posts from other episodes that have been made public 